Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue on in this study. As I mentioned as we began 2 Timothy chapter 3, this chapter is all about how we can live in the middle of a wicked world. We all understand that we live in a wicked world. I don't think we need to rehearse that again to understand that. But the Apostle Paul also understood what living in a wicked world was like. Remember, as he's writing 2 Timothy, he's in prison, condemned to death, waiting to die for the sole reason that he is a Christian. It's the only reason that he's in prison, awaiting death. The government was absolutely corrupt and ruled by a man who was insane. Paganism reigned around him while he was about to die. Now, while he was about to die, Timothy was not. Timothy was going to have to continue to live in this. And so in chapter 3, Paul gives Timothy instruction about living in the middle of a wicked world. And it's helpful to us as we live in the middle of a wicked world. We discovered in the first half of chapter 3 that Paul instructed Timothy to understand the wickedness of the world around him as inevitable. It is because we live in the last days. They began with Christ's ascension and they will continue until Christ's return. And the closer we get, the worse it will continue to get. But the solution to this wickedness is always the gospel. The answer is always the gospel. And Paul warned Timothy about the danger of worldliness seeping into the church. Now, in the second half of chapter 3... Paul gives Timothy three more instructions, three more uh, things that he needs to be aware of in order to live in a wicked world. Let's begin in chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll read down through verse 15. The section continues through 16 and 17, but we're going to save those two verses for next week. Paul writes, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus. As Paul continues his conversation with Timothy about the wicked world in which he lived, Paul gave Timothy some insight into how to thrive in the middle of this wicked world. You see, God does not just want us to live in fear about all that's happening around us. God doesn't want us to become bitter or angry about all that's happening around us. God does not want us to get caught up in the foolish arguments and attitudes that are happening around us. Rather, God wants us to thrive in the middle of a wicked world. To do that, this involves three more instructions which we learn from this text. The first instruction is this. We must follow after righteousness. 
He says in verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, he says, you, however, contrasting verses eight and nine. You see, while the wicked men had seeped into the church and had led away many gullible people, Timothy had stood strong. He had remained faithful. He had remained righteous. He followed after righteousness. And so Paul is commending him. He says to survive, you need to keep doing this. You have followed after all of these things I've done. Now, at first blush, we look at this text, it, it may seem like extreme arrogance by Paul, right? Now, you haven't done that. Instead, you followed me. Good job. And that might seem a little bit arrogant. However, as we examine the teachings and writings of Paul, we discover that that's not the case at all. Paul is reminding Timothy of their common ground around God himself, around righteousness. We're reminded of what he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That seems a little arrogant until you get to chapter 11, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, follow me in the way that I follow Christ. Don't conform to the world. Instead, follow God. And he's commending Timothy for not conforming to these wicked men, following after their teaching, being gullible and following after their foolishness, but rather following after righteousness. He's commending him for obeying Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, you, Timothy, you followed these things. Now, the word followed means more than simply to watch. He's not saying, Timothy, you've observed this in me. No, this word means to follow closely with a view to reproducing. It's used in other places of disciples following their teacher, learning from them, and then replicating that. So he gives an indication through this of what true righteousness looks like. The false Teachers were pursuing wickedness. Timothy was following righteousness. But we discover that righteousness is more than simply a claim. It's more than simply claiming to be a Christian. Claiming to be what's right. In fact, it involves more than simply going to church on Sunday. Coming to church every Sunday is a good thing. But it's not what makes you righteous. No. All of these items Paul presents express and imply obedience to the word of God. Let's look at the things he says. He says, you followed my teaching. The word there means doctrine. It's referring to the specific divinely inspired apostolic teaching that Timothy had heard from Paul over and over. You see, one can't live right if they don't believe right. You have to know the right things in order to obey them. And so what this means is that teaching and theology in the Bible are not just for smart people. It's not just for people who just kind of have that academic bent or who like books. No, it's for you. You see, you can't live right if you don't believe right. 
But if you believe right, you also have to live right. He says, you've also followed my conduct. This manner of life, the way you live your life, it does involve conduct. If one truly believes the right things, they'll live in accordance with that belief. As James tells us, faith without works is not real faith. So just because you say you believe does not mean that you do. You must show it by the way that you live. He says, you followed my goal or my purpose, my aim in life, the guiding motive of his life. What was Paul's goal and purpose in life? What was Paul's life all about? Well, he tells us often. We think of 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. His goal was to preach the gospel. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. As is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His goal and purpose in life was to glorify God, to honor Christ in everything that he did. Philippians 3, 7 to 16. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. What was his goal? The goal and purpose of a godly person is to please God in everything that they do. It's not to have a good retirement. That's not the goal in life. It's not to have a lot of fun, to enjoy life. It's not to be respected by everyone. It's not to make a lot of money. That's not the goal. It's to please God in everything and see his kingdom advance. Is that your goal and purpose in life? Is that your driving aim with your life? What's your goal in life? He says, you've seen my faith. This doesn't refer simply to creedal faith, belief, but rather to trust his absolute trust in God in every situation. You see, because he followed right teaching and lived in accordance with that teaching and focused his life around that teaching, he could have absolute faith in God in every situation. You see, your view of God determines your view of life. If you truly view God rightly, you will trust him Completely. He says, you've seen my patience. This is patience or long suffering with respect to people. Regardless of how others treat you, the righteous person loves God, obeys God and loves others. 
They're willing to endure wrong treatment by others. When people wrong you, when they treat you ill, when they force wrong things towards you, how do you respond? Do you respond with patience, long-suffering towards them, love towards them, or do you respond with anger and bitterness and wrath? He says, you've seen my love. This is that agape, God-like, others-motivated, sacrificial love. We see that this can only happen when we, that when we love, uh, when we see the way God loves us. We can only love others the way we ought to when we understand the way that God loves us. We must be marked by love, not by selfishness and hate. He says, you've seen my steadfastness. This is patience amid circumstances. Hard things happen, and yet I continually serve God. All these things are marks of righteousness. Interestingly enough, many of them echo Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. This is nothing new. If we want to survive in a wicked world, the answer is not to conform to the wicked world, but rather to live in light of God's Word, to follow and pursue righteousness. But there's an interesting thing that's also a part of the pursuit of righteousness. He says, you have seen, you have followed, you have sought to replicate my persecution and suffering. Verse 11 is so interesting. My persecution and sufferings that happened to me at Iconium, Antioch, Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from the Lord, uh, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Typically, when we think of righteousness, being righteous, we don't think of sufferings and persecution, right? When we speak of being blessed by God, what do we think about? Usually when we say God blessed us, we mean that God gave us some finances or something really good. Paul is saying that part of righteousness is persecution and suffering. In fact, it's used specifically of religious persecution. Now, Timothy was from this area around Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And he'd have been very familiar with what Paul faced in these cities because of the cause of Christ. We see them in Acts 13 and 14. In Acts 13, we see him in Antioch. He comes and delivers the word and, and he preaches the word and people are saved. And ultimately, the devout Jews are angered by this and they drive him out of the city. So where does he go? He goes to the next city, Iconium. And there, they run him out attempting to stone him. Not throwing pea gravel at him, trying to kill him. From there, he goes to Lystra. And there, they actually do stone him. They don't just try, they succeed. They stone him, they think he's dead, they drag him out of the city, leave him for dead, and God miraculously heals him. He gets up and goes back in and preaches again. These are the persecutions that Paul faced. He says, I endured them all. It means to bear up under, to carry out under them. Here, here's the point, though. Godly people will suffer persecution. But he says, from them all, the Lord rescued me. See, God is on our side. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It's an interesting thing Paul, for Paul to say as he's sitting in a prison cell awaiting death, right? You followed my persecution, but God delivered me from them all. What about now, Paul? Your head is about to be detached from your body. How is God going to deliver you now? Well, God always rescues his people. 
Sometimes he delivers them from death, but sometimes he delivers them through death. If they live, it's for Christ. And if they die, it's to Christ. He says, we're reminded by one commentator, the persecutions and difficulties of the godly make it appear as if the future were frightening, but they were in reality bound for glory. Regardless of what happens, no eternal harm can be done. The believer's eternal eternity is secure and a glorious future awaits him. So while we live here in this wicked world, we must follow after righteousness. Don't get sidetracked by this world. Pursue God with everything. But secondly, we need to recognize persecution as a reality for the godly. Paul and Timothy, uh, anticipates Timothy reading this. You followed my persecutions and my sufferings. This is part of being righteous. And Timothy thinking, really? Does it have to be? When we examine this list of righteous living, it seems odd that suffering and persecution are listed in it. And Paul anticipated this feeling and he reveals that to live in a wicked world, the Christian must recognize persecution as a reality for the godly. He says in verse 12, indeed, yes, I said that correctly. All who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We need to note here the promise of persecution. He says, indeed, yes, for sure, all, every single one who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we have to ask the question, what does it mean to desire to live godly? This is more than simply a passing desire. It is a continual bent of the will. It's a driving thought. It's a driving focus. He's contrasting those mentioned earlier in the chapter who have a form of godliness, but not the true thing. These people have made it their earnest resolution with God's help to live according to his commands and in devotion to him. The reality is Christians who are self-centered and only serve the Lord half-heartedly, they, they really have nothing to fear from the world or from Satan because they pose no threat to the world or to Satan. They're of little benefit to Christ and so they're paid little attention to, by Satan or the world. But those who live in devotion to Christ, they pose a major threat to Satan and this world and this world system. And so they suffer for it. The world will go on the offensive against them. This is not a new promise. This is not something Paul just made up. We're reminded of Christ's own statement. Mark eight thirty four. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. In John 15, 18 through 20, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. In Matthew 5, 11 and 12, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's an interesting way to respond to persecution. Blessed, satisfied, happy. Rejoice in it. One thing I've noticed, if nothing else, over the last year and a half is that Christians don't tend to rejoice and be glad when they're persecuted. A lot of them tend to be angry and bitter and upset. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul echoed this sentiment. Verse 9, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To the Thessalonians, Paul said this, 1 Thessalonians 3, 4. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Reminded of the apostles in Acts 14. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the point. If you're not suffering for Christ, it's possible that you're not really living for Christ. Now, in our context, it rarely means significant suffering, jail, beatings, death. Thankfully. But it certainly means the loss of influence, the loss of friends, being ignored at work, mocked, ridiculed, and the like. Don't be surprised when this happens. It's been promised. Why? Why, why is this happening? Why must this happen? Well, Paul gives the reason for this. He says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil people and imposters. The word imposters is an interesting word. It generally means sorcerer. It literally means one who wails or howls. But because sorcerers and wizards and magicians commonly use whales in their incantations, the term came to mean and describe those kinds of people. And it later came to be used of any deceiver, anybody who is an imposter. Here it's probably used in the sense of a swindler or a cheat. These people are those deceived by Satan and his evil spirits, so much so that they begin to even believe their own deceptive message. Having set the worst possible goal in front of them, they make good headway on it, towards it by means of deception, and on the way they actually begin to believe what they're saying. And so, they just keep getting worse. We're reminded of this in Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God about a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. 
One commentator put it this way. The reason why persecution awaits all those who are firmly resolved to adorn their confession with a truly Christian life is that in the midst of contradictions coming from every side, they refuse either to stop their ears or to cringe and compromise. Instead, they face the problem and challenge uh, and combat it. They go right ahead, boldly defending the faith against every attack and courageously assaulting the fortress of unbelief. The result is persecution. At times, very bitter. This persecution can take many different forms. It can vary in degree. It can vary between countries and ages. But the basic hostility of the world to the godly people remains unchanged. The world is not your friend. The world is not your ally. To live in a wicked world, we must recognize the reality of persecution. You cannot avoid it. Instead, you must embrace it. How is that possible? Embracing persecution does not seem like something I really want to do. Well, the third instruction helps us with this. Third, we are to anchor our life to the word of God. He says in verse 14, but as for you, unlike those who are waxing worse and worse, you instead continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In order to thrive in the midst of a wicked world that is seeking to persecute the righteous and make them suffer, the Christian must stand firm on what they know to be true from the word of God. In order to remain stable in the storm, they must anchor their life to the word of God like a rock that will hold them fast against the increasing fury of the waves around them. He says, you continue in the word, remain steadfast in it, make it your constant habit of life. John Stott said this, certainly the pressures upon us to conform are colossal, not only from the direct challenges to traditional beliefs and morals, but also and more from the insidious, pervasive atmosphere of secularism, which even seeps into the church. We are not to be like a reed shaken with the wind, feebly blowing down before it from whatever direction it may blow. Rather, like a rock in a mountain torrent, we are to stand firm. Over the last week, we saw some winds blow. It was quite the storm. It's interesting, just Jonesville, just down the street from me, there is a massive tree. That was blown over. The roots came right up out of the ground. One thing I noticed about why that happened is because the roots aren't deep at all. They're really shallow and they just extend out. Nothing went down. Other trees, they sustained damage. Branches broke off them, but they're still standing there. Why? Because that taproot goes deep. They anchored themselves into the ground. In the same way, we are to anchor ourselves to the word of God. What does this look like? Well, it looks like three things. Number one, learn it and firmly believe it. He says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You learned it. 
You studied it out. You sat under its teaching. But you also firmly believe that you were convinced of it. Timothy faithfully studied the word. He faithfully sat under the right preaching of the word from Paul. And he became completely convinced of its truth. The reality is that this book contains everything you need for your life and for godliness. In the text we'll look at next week, we learn that it is inspired and sufficient for everything. But you must truly believe it. You must be convinced enough to rest your life on this book. How can you get to that point? By studying it. You have to take the time in your own personal discipleship to study this word. Let me challenge you not to study about this word. We tend to do that really well. We love studies. We love little book devotional books that talk a lot about the word. Let me challenge you to study the word itself. Open it up. Read it. Anchor yourself to it. If you have to search for your Bible every Sunday... The world and Satan have nothing to fear from you. You're going to be blown around like the trees blown over when the storms come because you've not anchored your life. But if you daily feast on this word and do the hard work of study, then you'll be anchored and you'll be strong. You must learn it and be fully convinced of it. Perhaps you say, Pastor, it's hard. I don't really even know how to study the word. I'm not even sure how to do it. We've got some opportunities to help you with that. Tuesday morning, men, 6 a.m., Johnny T's. We teach you how to study this word. You say, that's early. 6 a.m. is stupid. I agree. But you know what? If you don't like that, how about Wednesday night, 7 p.m.? Every Wednesday night, 7 p.m., we meet in that chapel right there, and we teach you how to study this word rightly. How to handle it correctly. You might say, Pastor, that's just boring. There's your problem. That's why you're going to get blown over by this world. You must learn this word and be anchored to it. Firmly believe it. Do you believe this word? Do you believe it? Do you believe it has everything you need for life and godliness? To survive in this wicked world, you must. Secondly, you must remember and pass on its godly heritage. Notice what he says at the end of verse 14. He says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. As a Jewish boy, Timothy would have been instructed in the scripture from a young age. Now, since his father was a pagan Gentile, he would have received this instruction from his mother. And Paul also indicates in first Timothy that he was also instructed by his grandmother. He had a godly heritage in the scripture. Timothy, from a young age, was taught the word of God. Let me challenge you that you need to pass on your belief in the word of God to your children and to your grandchildren. Dads, it is important that you pass on this teaching to your children and to your grandchildren. You need to take the leadership in it. You need to encourage them in it. And you need to do it yourself. Moms, you need to pass this on to your children. You say, my husband's not doing it. Then you do it. Timothy's dad wasn't doing it. But his mom and his grandmother did. 
They passed it on. And Paul came along and passed it on. Teach your family the word of God. You know, we see young people across the country growing up in the church. And as soon as they get old enough, they run away from it. And often the blame is placed on the church. You know, if the youth group were just a little bit stronger, a little bit more fun, they would have stuck. Let me be very blunt. The reason those kids are leaving the church is because at home, mom and dad didn't live this and proclaim it to them. They didn't. Parents who pass on this to their children, their children stick. Teach this to your children and to your grandchildren. Don't be ashamed about it. You say, well, what do we do when people are over? Invite them to join you. Pass on the word. But beyond this, he's also pointing to something even deeper. He's pointing to the fact that the scriptures were not just invented. They were written and passed down over the centuries through faithful men and women. You're not inventing it. Millennia of Christians have passed this on. We stand on the shoulder of millennia of faithful believers. Hebrews 12 pictures them as a great crowd sitting in the stands of the stadium and cheering us on in our walk with Christ. They remain steadfast. You can too. Remember Christian history. They're founded in the sacred writings. What, what are these sacred writings he's talking about? He says, you have been founded, been acquainted with the sacred writings. What's he talking about? Well, this was a phrase used to refer to the Old Testament. However, by this time, it had also become to be used of the inspired writings of Paul. All that had remained, remained yet to be written of the New Testament were the writings of John, his gospel and his, his letters and the book of Revelation. Everything else, by the time Paul wrote Second Timothy, had been written and it had been recognized as Scripture. Peter, who was also awaiting death in prison when Paul wrote this book, made this statement in Second Peter 3, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. In other words, he says their scripture too. So what's he talking about when he says you've been acquainted with the sacred writings? He's talking about what you have right here. The completed work of God. He's stating that we are to anchor ourselves in this book just as millennia of believers have done before us. And we're to pass it on to others. Timothy received it from his parents and his grandmother. And we are to pass it on to our children and to our grandchildren. And we will be more motivated to do this when we realize its purpose. Why do we have this? What is this book all about? He tells us. He says in verse 15, You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The aim of the content of these sacred writings is to relate God's saving purpose in Christ. This book is all about salvation. 
It's all about the kingdom of God. This book is not an encyclopedia of how-tos for life to live a better life. That's not what this is. Sometimes we treat it that way. We treat it like some sort of encyclopedia where we just find the topic and run with it. But when you actually study the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, you discover that it's about something so much greater. It's about salvation in Christ and your walk with God. Your relationship with him. It's all about God's work of salvation in Christ. And it comes in two ways. First, it instructs us in the process of Christ obtaining our salvation and that salvation being placed on our accounts. That we're sinners. We can't get to God. But Christ died for our sins and through faith, his righteousness is placed on us. But then secondly, it tells us how to live out that salvation, sanctification. It instructs us how we are to obey Christ in our life. It informs us how we are to live lives that reflect God. You see, salvation is more than simply praying a prayer. It's more than simply believing God exists. Salvation recognizes God's sovereignty over all things and seeks to submit to that sovereignty in our manner of life. And salvation instructs us how to enter a relationship with God and how to live in that relationship. You know, too many Christians seek to live their lives apart from the word of God. They're Sunday Christians. They come, you sit in the pew, you wait for the pastor to shut up, and then you go home. And you consider yourself a Christian. But that's not what God is calling us for. These people seek the answers to this world in everything but the word. They seek the answers in politics and philosophy and academics and money and fun, but not the word. They only use the word when it agrees with their thinking. But those who would live godly and who will thrive in a wicked world anchor themselves to the word of God. For it provides the only hope. They'll not let it go. They love it. They study it. They pass it on. And they recognize its purpose. We live in the middle of a wicked world. Each week uh, brings news of more depravity. Every, each day we feel the broken world. You know, at times we feel it's so dark the light can't even get through. We wonder how we can carry on. But in the middle of this intense wickedness, we don't need to be bitter. We don't need to be discouraged. We don't need to be angry. We can thrive. We can find satisfaction. We can find joy. But in order to do so, we must follow after righteousness. All righteousness, not just in pieces, the parts of it we like, but all of it, including persecution. We must learn the word and live the word and love the word. We must love others. We must recognize that if we're going to desire to live godly, it's going to come at a cost. We will suffer and be persecuted. And so we must anchor ourselves to God's word. You know, this section is calling us to dedicate ourselves afresh to submit it, sub submission and obedience to the word of God. It's calling us to surrender ourselves to the living out of the commands of God. It's calling us to reevaluate our lives and examine our goals and our purpose in life. It's calling us to truly desire godliness. The question is, will you do that? Let me give you four so what's, what that looks like. We've heard them. 
just want to reiterate them. Number one, be willing to obey the hard things in the word. All of righteousness. Be willing to obey the hard things in the word. Even things that you don't understand why they're there. Even things that you think, I just don't, God, uh, maybe not this situation. I don't think you saw it in this situation. Be willing to obey God's word regardless of the cost. Number two, don't be angry at the wicked. Love them. Throughout this, part of righteousness is patience and love. Wicked people are going to do wicked things. That's why they're wicked. Love them. Number three, embrace the suffering and the persecution. So often as Christians, we fear it. Oh, it's coming. Oh, I'm so afraid. Don't you know that if so-and-so is elected, persecution will come? Don't you know that this, this philosophy continues to take root, persecution will come? Yes. And we, we battle against it. But we don't fear it. We embrace that reality. Because when we are weak, then he is strong. We understand that the kingdom advances in the midst of persecution. And we learn this by number four, anchoring ourselves to the word of God. So, Pastor, you sound like a broken record. Yeah. You have to get in this book. You have to believe this book. Stop reading about the book and start reading the book. Study it rightly. Come on Wednesday night. Come on Tuesday morning. Study the word. If you think you got it together and you already know, you have no fear or problem to Satan at all because you haven't anchored yourself to this book. Anchor yourself to it. Love it. Learn it. Do the hard work of studying it. And watch the way God transforms your life, your happiness and your joy in the midst of a wicked world. Chapter 3 informs us we can live in the middle of a wicked world. We don't have to be afraid of it. We can thrive in it. We have to respond to it rightly. We have to understand the right solutions. And when we do, God works in an amazing way. I invite you to join me on that walk. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity that you have given us to learn from your word. Lord, we thank you. That there is nothing in this world that is coming that is a surprise to you. You knew it, and you saw it, and you even ordained it. Lord, I ask that you would help us to trust you. Help us to study your word that we might know how to respond and what you expect of us. Help us to long to obey you. Help us also to understand and embrace the suffering that will come as a result of that. That in all things you might look as good as you really are. And yet, even in the midst of that, we cry, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.